This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Real Time with Bill Maher, The Young Turks, The Johan Hardy Podcast, The Onion Radio News, The Bugle, and The Moth, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Colbert Report. Your, your last quote comes from Steve Martin talking to Alec Baldwin on Twitter the other day. Alec, now we can get married. <laughs> <laughs> Martin was all excited because now he could marry Alec Baldwin or any man, really. Where? In New York. In New York, New York State, New York City, the whole thing. In what... Some are calling a remarkable advance, and others the first sign of the apocalypse. The New York State Legislature approved same-sex marriage in that state last Friday, meaning a lot of gay people in New York City and elsewhere in the state just lost their best excuse. <laughs> Phones rang in stylish apartments and lofts in Chelsea and the West Village over the weekend with mothers saying, Well? <laughs> so? When are you going to make an honest man out of Chad? <laughs> oh, we can just see it. You know, all the mothers are going to be so excited. They'll say to the prospective son-in-laws, you know, you're like the son I already had. <laughs> <laughs> but people should be warned about marriage that it's not always going to be gay. That's true. <laughs> One thing everybody's wondering, though, with gay marriage, what's going to happen to comedy? Because marriage has provided fodder and jokes since, you know, Adam first said to Eve, stand back, I don't know how big this thing gets. Right? <laughs> That's like the basis of comedy. Mm -hmm. so, so what's going to happen to marriage jokes now that the standards have changed? <laughs> now they both know how big it gets. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, joining us now to help modernize classic marriage jokes, it's the master of the malaprop, one of America's favorite funny men, Mr. Norm Crosby. Norm, welcome to Wait, Wait. Thank you, Peter. Great to have you. So, um, Norm Crosby here. So, so, Norm, you've heard about the new marriage law in New York. What effect uh -huh. are they going to have on marriage jokes, do you think? Well, I don't think it's going to make any difference because marriage is marriage. If it's he and he and she and she or he and she, what's the difference? I have uh, some gay friends that are married and uh, they've been together for 20 years. They were just thrilled to get married. Yeah. I asked them, what's the, you know, you've been together for so long. What's the secret? He said, well, we, we just made a pact. We would never go to bed mad. Yeah. They stayed up once for seven months. <laughs> really? And they said the, 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 big, the big secret is to keep the romance alive. Yeah. He said, I, you know, go out two nights a week to drinks and dance and see a show and have fun. He said, I go Monday and Wednesday and George goes Thursday. <laughs> Norm, Norm. <laughs> I, ha I have a feeling you're going to do fine in this brave new world, am I right? It's not going to make a bit of difference. I live in Hollywood, Peter. I, it's about a week ago, two antennas got married at the Beverly Hills Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the wedding was just so-so, but the reception was... No.
As promised on this, a brief comment tonight about the continuing fight over same-sex marriage and the tipping point for or against, represented by events here in New York State. The tipping point, of course, is temporary. Every year, the margin by which this country supports this grows, and within a decade or perhaps less, it will be universal in this nation, period. Ironically, this is not because there is great advocacy for it, but simply out of an inability of younger people in this country to do what older ones still can, to pretend that this matters anymore. It just doesn't. It won't destroy the democracy. It doesn't destroy the family. It strengthens the institution of marriage and its principal premise of fidelity, and it increases the number of people living in stable and loving homes. And the more that modern life allows us to interact with others of different faiths and professions and interests and origins, the more we understand that people are fundamentally the same all over, good and bad. And if you want to categorize people, you should categorize them on their honesty, their sincerity, their generosity. But a curious thing is happening to the forces still opposed to same-sex marriage. They are getting desperate. There was a protester in the New York capital of Albany this week who explained this was all about the children that the same-sex families had kids who were exposed to things they should never face anywhere, let alone at home. Oops. If you want to open up the Pandora's box of judging whether people should be permitted to marry based on their qualifications to be parents, I'm afraid there are only going to be about 43 weddings per year in this country because the list of risks to children created by their parents is nightmarishly long, and standing there being all gay around them is probably no higher than number 206. If the opponents of same-sex marriage want to take this perilous route, then they are likely only to hasten same-sex marriage in all 50 states and to merely bloody themselves in the process. Because sooner rather than later, the euphemisms and the facades, especially this one about raising children, will fall away and the opponents will be revealed to be carrying water for a larger kind of orthodoxy. Their church is opposed to same-sex marriage because same-sex marriage means diversity. And diversity means peaceful interaction between members of different groups and religions. And peaceful interaction means fears and prejudices are diminished, and the diminishing means that those churches' cartel in the religion business is jeopardized. I'm not talking belief or faith here. Your belief and your faith, providing you do not hurt anybody else with it, is your business, and I defend you. But if you think big league religions are, not, are only about faith and not at all about business, or about keeping people scared, then you have not been paying attention in church or out. And there is an even bigger issue. There is an ever-growing acceptance of what I said about this nearly three years ago after the hateful Prop 8 was passed in California. This is, corny as it seems, not about politics or religions or power or lobbying. It is about love. In a time of impermanence and fly-by-night relationships, these people over here want the same chance at permanence and happiness that is already yours. They don't want to deny you yours. They don't want to take anything away from you. They want what you want, a chance to be a little less alone in the world. And your acceptance of their love turns out to be your own expression of love to your fellow human being. As in 2008, the poetry of the 11th century Persian Omar Khayyam tells this story best. I recommend it to anybody still holding out on this, whether they be pedestrian or president. So I be written in the book of love. I do not care about that book above. Erase my name or write it as you will. So I be written in the book of love. Who wrote the book of love? 
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Now that a Cheney, a McCain, and a Bush have come out to support gay marriage, it's your turn, Obama. <laughs> Who are you waiting for? The state of Alabama? The Reverend F Fred Phelps? Even 63% of Catholics are okay with gay marriage. But then again, they're used to being fed the body of a man by another man wearing a dress. <laughs> Now, this month, America reached a milestone in its attitude toward gays. More than half the country, 53%, now support gay marriage. Now, that still means that 47% of Americans are assholes, but... <laughs> after all, if a poll found that 47% of Americans thought blacks should not be able to marry a Kardashian sister... <laughs> the Twitter sphere would light up like Charlie Sheen just fell down a well. But still, this is remarkable progress, considering that it wasn't that long ago that just saying the words gay marriage made most Americans throw up in their cornflakes. So tonight, I'd like to congratulate the leadership of the Democratic Party who really stood up for what was right. I'd like to, but I can't. Because other than Gavin Newsom, Dennis Kucinich, and that governor in New Jersey who went all broke back mountain with his bodyguard... <laughs> No Democrat would touch this issue with a 10-inch pole. <laughs> it wasn't the Democrats who changed America on this issue. It was television, which in the last five years has gotten gayer than the British Navy. <laughs> and if, <laughs> if there's one thing I know about Americans, is that if they see something on TV, it makes it okay. And when they saw real gay couples standing on courthouse steps wearing the same ugly rented tuxedos that straight men wear to get married, suddenly they realized that the gays were just like them, tacky and overweight. <laughs> Recently, Victoria Jackson, the oldest surviving member of Saturday Night Live, said the show Glee is, quote, shoving the gay thing down our throats. Now, besides being the first funny thing she said in 25 years, that is true. They are shoving the gay thing down America's throat. And it turns out America got used to it surprisingly quickly. And that really shouldn't shock anybody, because shoving things down America's throat 
is what the Republicans do all the time. <laughs> Unlike the Democrats, when Republicans believe in things that the public doesn't, their response is, fuck it, we'll make them believe. <laughs> like attacking Iraq to avenge 9-11. Like convincing a country that badly wanted health care reform that they actually didn't want it. Like turning... Like turning global warming into a hoax. That's what conservatives do. Relentlessly push until the unthinkable becomes the consensus. The idea of blaming teachers for our financial crisis, which would have seemed completely lunatic a year ago, becomes the conventional wisdom. Republicans don't run from unpopular stances, and they stand by their convictions. Stupid, ignorant, world-destroying convictions based on disproven economic fantasies and ancient books full of primitive morality and magic people, but convictions nonetheless. Look inside, look inside your tiny mind, and look a bit harder, cause we're so uninspired, so sick and tired. Of all the hatred you harbor So you say It's not okay to be gay Well I think you're just evil You're just some racist Who can't tie my laces Your point of view is medieval Obviously, reporters asked him about the gay marriage law in New York, and uh, Obama gave an interesting answer. Let's play clip uh, number five. This administration, under my direction, has consistently said we cannot discriminate as a country against people on the basis of sexual orientation. And we have done more in the two and a half years that I've been in here than the previous 43 presidents to uphold that principle. Uh, we have made sure that that is a central principle of this administration because I think it's a central principle of America. What I've seen happen over the last several years and what happened in New York last week I think was a good thing because what you saw was the people of New York having a debate, talking through these issues, it was contentious, it was emotional, but ultimately they made a decision to recognize civil marriages. And I think that's exactly how things should work. But I think uh, we're moving in a direction of greater equality, uh, and, and I think that's a good thing. He thinks it's a good thing. Okay, I got it. He thinks it's a good thing. He's right. They've done more for gay rights than the previous 43 presidents combined. They have. They just have. Uh, and I know there, there are some gay activists who don't think he's done enough. Uh, I think they've done a lot. Um, that said, he doesn't ever lower the sort of the righteous hammer that needs to come down. He's always thought it was contentious. There was healthy debate on both sides. Oh, man, it's a civil rights issue. There's only one good side here. Only one. Only one side is 100% right and one side is 100% wrong. Not everybody on that wrong side is bad and they'll eventually come around to it and they're incorrect for a number of reasons, but they're wrong. And I, I, I mean that. They're, they're not all bad. Some of them have been lifelong sort of entrenched ideas 
those who are willing to give every other right to gay Americans, but not this one, I'm prepared to say that they're not, uh, there's no evil in their heart, but they are dead frickin' wrong. So, but Obama just lacks that passion. Then I guess Laura Meckler, is that the name of the reporter, uh, uh, JR from the Wall Street Journal, asks Obama the significant question of, look, you have said that your position on gay marriage is evolving, that you support civil unions and not gay marriage. Now he's, you know, waiting until the time is right, until he thinks there are votes in it to actively support gay marriage. She asks him that question. It's a good question, needs to be asked. And Obama answers it totally directly, of course. You said that it's a positive step that so many states, including New York, are moving towards that. Does that mean that you personally now do support same-sex marriage, putting aside what individual states decide? Is that your personal view? I'm not going to make news on that today. Good try, though. Um, I think this has been asked and answered. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll keep on giving you the, the same answer until I give you a different one. All right? And that won't be today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought you'd like that one. Uh, that's good stuff. She just cut right in. She was like, nah, hey, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, she was like, no, oh, you said something that leads me to believe your position has changed. Yeah, you're supposed to. You're supposed to follow up. Sometimes the follow-up question is the same question again, saying you, you didn't answer that question, and you put pressure on them. And sometimes that's all you need to, and we got a pretty good answer from the president. I mean, a pretty good answer from the president, not in what he said, but in sort of a revelatory television moment. They're not prepared to go any farther than that right now. They will soon. It's coming but only when he sees it as advantageous politically. Why he doesn't recognize it as advantageous politically now is a little beyond me. Polls consistently show that most Americans favor gay marriage. Look at this. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who pushed this thing through in the New York Assembly uh, and the New York Senate, uh, the legislature there in New York, his approval rating is the strongest it's been, the highest it's been since he ever took office. A new uh, Quinnipiac University poll has his approval rating at 64%, 64% disapproval of 19, at 64-19, a 45-point gap for Andrew Cuomo in New York. It is higher now than it was before the gay marriage law was put through. So, I mean, what are you, what are you waiting for, man? It's popular. People like it. 75% of Democrats, 61% of Independents, 53% of Republicans approve of Andrew Cuomo. His last name is Cuomo, and 53% of Republicans approve of it. So, I got to tell you, man, just say it. Just, just get yourself past it. You know what I think I approve of gay marriage? What do you think is going to happen? It's going to be fine. It's going to be good. You're on the right side. You're on the right side about this, and you're on the right side about taxes, man. Just say it. Just say it. Just say it. You better say it now Cause this is what you've waited for Your chance to even up the score 
hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. This week I want to talk about something riffing on the gorgeous scenes from New York where the state senate has now legalised gay marriage and you see these couples who've been together for 60 years who can finally get a legal recognition of their relationship. And it made me think a lot about a book I reviewed recently. The American right quite persistently presents homosexuality as something alien to the American experience, an intruder that inexplicably gatecrashed America in 1969 in the form of a rioting drag queen clutching a high heel in her fist as a weapon. The statements of people like Michelle Bachman, Rick Santorum or Mitt Romney insistently hint that the fag does not belong under the flag. But there's something odd about that. For people who talk incessantly about honouring American history, they've built a historical picture of their country that can only be sustained by scrubbing it clean of a significant part of the population and everything they brought to the party, if not the Tea Party. In his new book, A Queer History of the United States, the cultural critic Michael Bronsky runs the film backward through 500 years of American life, showing there were gay and bisexual people in every scene making and remaking America. They were some of the country's greatest icons, from Emily Dickinson to Calamity Jane to perhaps even Abraham Lincoln and Eleanor Roosevelt. The writing drag queens of the Stonewall Inn arrive on page 210 of a 250-page book that argues gay people weren't merely present at every stage. They had a historical mission in America. It was to expose Puritanism, scolding and sexual intolerance. But there's a kind of weird and disagreeable turn in the book where Bronsky having brilliantly set all this out, then suddenly concludes in the, in the final act of this story, gays have en masse abandoned their mission by demanding the most domestic and Puritan goal of all, monogamous marriage. But let's go back a bit. The gay alternative to Puritan America began before the first white settler ever arrived. The day before Christopher Columbus set foot in North America, it was a safer place for gay people than it was ever going to be again for several centuries. The limited but sturdy evidence provided by historians that Bronsky draws on suggests homosexuality was treated matter-of-factly among most Native American tribes. In the records of the Lewis and Clark expeditions, Nicholas Biddle observes, quote, Among the Mamitaris, if a boy shows any symptom of effeminacy or girlish inclinations, he's put among the girls, dressed in their way, brought up with them, and sometimes married to men, end quote. Among the Crow tribe, a horrified white observer wrote, quote, men who dressed as women and specialised in women's work were accepted and sometimes honoured. A woman who led men in battle and had four wives was a respected chief, end quote. Obviously, we shouldn't romanticise this. One tribe accepted homosexuality by raising young men to be passives, available as sexual resources to the tribe, which sounds pretty much like gang rape to me. But 
In most places, different sexualities were granted room for expression, much of it consensual. The Europeans, when they arrived, looked on in revulsion, like Jerry Falwell in a powdered wig. In the 1775 diary of Pedro Font, a Franciscan on a trip to what's now California, he warns that, quote, the sin of sodomy prevails more among the Miami than in any other nation, end quote, and concludes with a cluck, quote, there will be much to do when the holy faith and the Christian religion are established among them, end quote. There was a lot to do, and it was done with extreme violence. These practices were stamped out by force, which Bronski argues provided a template for how mainstream European culture would treat gay people throughout much of US history. The Europeans who arrived in North America had a ferociously fierce sense of how gender and sexuality should be expressed. They fled Britain because they felt it had become a syphilitic brothel, and they hadn't even seen Milton Keynes on a Saturday night in 2011. Although homosexuality was illegal in Elizabethan England, the culture allowed it to be represented and discussed. Christopher Marlowe could even go around semi-publicly saying that St. John the Baptist was bedfellow to Christ and leaned always in his bosom that he used him as the sinners of Sodom. The Puritans came to America to shun all this and to build instead a pure theocratic homeland. As the research of the historian Jonathan Ned Katz shows, they meant it. Many people were executed for sodomy. Yet, he also uncovers cases that suggest this isn't the whole story. Look at the court records of a man called Nicholas Sension of Windsor, Connecticut, for example. From the 1640s to 1677, he had a long history of propositioning men for sex, offering to pay men for sex, and sexually assaulting male servants. He was admonished by the town elders in the late 1640s and in the 1660s, but there was a general consensus in the community against legal charges. It looks like they liked him. The prohibition, it seems, wasn't absolute. But then, in 1677, he was finally convicted of attempted sodomy, and he was publicly whipped and had his estate seized. From the start, there were always Americans who dissented from this Puritanism, often in the most blatant way. <laughs> this is my favourite group. In, 19, in 1624, a large group of people, led by a man named Thomas Morton, decided to found a town based on very different principles in the area that's now Quincy near Boston. They called the town Merrymount, which was popular slang at the time for illicit forms of fucking, and built an 80-foot phallic symbol in the town square. They freed any indentured servants who joined them, befriended the local Native American tribe and began to intermarry with them, which obviously suggests many of the members were heterosexuals, sick of Puritan strictures and open to other ways. Now, Merrymount sounds to me as quintessentially American as Salem and a lot more fun. But the conflict that runs through American history between fundamentalism and freedom mowed down Merrymount. In 1629, after a five-year-long prefiguring of life in South Beach or West Hollywood, the local Puritans invaded the town and dismantled it brick by brick. Unfortunately, history doesn't record what they did with the 80-foot phallus. Morton was deported back to London, where he became one of the most eloquent critics of the genocide of the Native Americans in all of Europe. The Puritan spirit was soon diluted by a flood of new immigrants who weren't drawn by their religious vision, but by 
economic opportunities. Between 1700 and 1720, the population almost doubled to 470,000. But obviously it remained a fiercely sexually repressed society. In 1775, a young woman called Jemima Wilkinson had a chronic fever and announced that Jesus Christ had entered her body and stopped her from being a woman. She would no longer be called male or female. She was now neuter. She travelled across America raging against sexuality of any kind and saying nobody should ever have sex again. Crowds would gather and cheer her with a mixture of glee and guilt and a huge cult of anti-sex began to surround her. Some gay people were rebelling in more inventive ways. In 1782, at the age of 22, a woman called Deborah Samson Gannett dressed up as a man and enrolled in the army as Robert Shirtliff. Yep, Shirtliff. She fought bravely in several battles until she was wounded and exposed, but her memoirs became a bestseller, including her titillating accounts of flirting with women and hinting at more. Now, again, there were hints that America at that time was much more open to alternative sexualities than we've been led to believe. She sparked a popular genre that ran all through the American Civil War of tales of disguised women who fought in battle pretending to be men. Some of them were even awarded military pensions. Yet, here's a weird wrinkle. The ideas of the Enlightenment were at the core of America's founding, but they didn't percolate into its view of sexuality until much later. In France, the implications of Enlightenment values for gays were obvious almost immediately. In 1789, the French Assemblée Nationale declared that liberty consists in the freedom to do anything which injures no one else, and so they abolished all punishments for sodomy. The United States kept, elaborated on, and enforced its sodomy laws for another 212 years. Why? The historian R.A. Moore has tried to unpack how societies create dangerous groups that need to be shunned, whether it's Jews, heretics, lepers, gays, in his book The Formation of a Persecuting Society. And Bronsky seems to subscribe to his perspective. Nothing helps to solidify a group and to make its members feel they belong more than identifying an enemy or someone who has to be expelled from the tribe. To have us, you need to have them. Perhaps precisely because America was admirably a country of immigrants, it needed to cling to the embers of Puritan homophobia to reinforce its fragile sense of unity. It was only in 1869 that the Hungarian writer Karl Maria Kurtbeny coined the word homosexual and began to describe the phenomenon scientifically. But as Bronsky tells it, the real break in the American conversation about gays came from a source that is often overlooked the anarchists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And for God's sake, please no one tell Glenn Beck or we'll have a fucking flowchart showing that gay marriage ineluctably leads to anarchy, which ineluctably leads to George Soros. We can live without that. Writers like Alexander Berkman and Emma Goldman were the first to point out and put forward three crucial points that transformed the debate. Bronsky celebrates their challenge to narrowly constrained domesticity they argue, he writes, that sexuality is natural and positive, that sex can be solely about pleasure, and that if consensual, sex should not be the subject of any laws. In their suspicion of all rules and all laws, the anarchists were the first to see the nasty codes surrounding sexuality serve no positive purpose and only spread misery. Intriguingly, the first open champions of homosexual freedom in America were, it turns out, almost all heterosexual. 
It's around this time that gay people began crafting crafting their own narratives, albeit awkwardly and painfully, for the first time in the American story. A leading neurologist in 1894 wrote down the words of one of his patients. This is what it said. Quote, The knowledge that I'm so unlike others makes me very miserable. I form no acquaintances out of business, keep mostly to myself, and do not indulge my sexual feelings. Close quote. The scattered and still furtive confessions and reflections of gays as a new century approached ache with this incredible sense of pure isolation. Many of them believed they were the only homosexual in the world, a human dead end. But when gay people began to be able to whisper, they began to find each other. Bronsky pauses over the letters pages of magazines like Physique Pictorial, which started in 1951 depicting bodybuilders in tiny posing pouches the letters there in that magazine whisper even louder one of them said i know now i'm not alone in my beliefs and you are truly doing a wonderful job in uniting young men from all over the world who share a common interest a series of historical trends were colliding to make steps towards gay equality possible for the first time it was becoming normal for single adults to live alone apart from their family unit the apartment, the car and the city, all of them made anonymity possible and with anonymity there came the flickers of freedom. Then in 1960 a small white tablet turbocharged the cause of gay equality. The contraceptive pill separated sex and reproduction for straight people so that for them sex became what it had always been for gay people, a joyous and exuberant end in itself. Straight people were no longer so inclined to touch they were doing it themselves. The gradual expansion and freeing of straight sexuality, its depuritanization, brought with it a greater tolerance for gay sexuality as the two converged. But the most decisive turning point arrived when gay people began to band together to demand to be treated decently. The Mattachine Society was founded in 1950, named after a French Renaissance secret fraternity of unmarried men. But it couldn't agree on its central goal. The battle in that society, which created a deep split in the group within three years, runs through gay history from that point on and eventually breaks apart Bronsky's book. It boils down to this. Is the point of the gay struggle to say we are essentially the same as straight people, or is it to say we're different and glad to be so? My view, ever since reading my friend Andrew Sullivan's masterpiece Virtually Normal when I was a teenager, is that the point of the gay rights struggle is to show that homosexuality is a trivial and meaningless difference. Gay people want what straight people want. I am the same as my straight siblings in all meaningful ways, so I should be treated the same under the law and accorded all the same public rights and public responsibilities. The ultimate goal of the gay rights movement for me is to make homosexuality as uninteresting and as unworthy of comment as left-handedness. That isn't Bronsky's view. As as he's made more stridently clear in his previous books, he believes that gay people are essentially different from straight people. Why is his book called A Queer History and Not A Gay History? It seems to be because the word queer is more marginal, more edgy and more challenging to ordinary Americans. Bronsky believes that while the persecution in this 500-year history was bad, the marginality was not. Gay people are marginal not because of persecution, but because they have a historical cause to challenge, quote, how gender and sexuality are viewed in normative culture, end quote. Their role then for him is to show that monogamy 
and gender boundaries and ideas like marriage throttle the free libidinal impulses of humanity. So instead of arguing for the right to get married, gay people should have been arguing for the abolition of marriage, the abolition of monogamy, and much more besides. He says, just like you is not what all Americans want. Historically, just like you is the great American lie. He swipes at the movement for gay marriage and Sullivan in particular as an elaborate revival of the old social purity movements with the kicker that this time gays are doing it to themselves. It's easy to forget now, but when Andrew Sullivan first made the case for gay marriage, his events were picketed by gay people who were spitting this argument into his face, depicting him in crosshairs. It seems bizarre now. When Bronsky argues this case, his prose, which is normally really clear, becomes oddly murky and awkward. And he might not agree with every word of my summary, but it's the best I can figure it out. He does finally explicitly say that the gay movement should have fought instead to eliminate marriage, a cause that would have kept gay people marginalised for centuries, if not forever. Of course, some gay people hold revolutionary views against the social structures of marriage and the family, and so do some straight people, but they're pretty small minorities in both groups. If you want to set yourself against these trends in the culture, that's absolutely fine. We could have an interesting intellectual debate about it, but just don't equate it with your homosexuality or claim that it's inherent to it. When Bronsky suggests that gay marriage, quote, works against another unrealised American ideal, individual freedom and autonomy, end quote. He's bizarrely missing the point. No one is saying gay people have to get married, only that they should have a legal option if they want it. If you disagree with marriage, don't get married. Whose freedom does that restrict? It's bizarre that Bronsky, after this really rousing historical rebuttal to the right-wing attempts to write gays out of American history, ends up agreeing with Santorum, Beck and Bachmann that gay people are inherently subversive and revolutionary, longing for the basic institutions of the heterosexual world to be torn down. There's a whole gay pride of people marching through Bronsky's book who show it ain't so. I can see them now, marching down the centre of the mall, the Native American chief with her four wives, Nicholas Sension with the whip marks on his back, the residents of Merrymount holding aloft their 80-foot phallus, Deborah Samson Garnet dressed in her military uniform as Robert Shirtliff, and the men from Physique Pictorial in their posing pouches, amazed to discover they're not alone. Yes, they were all Americans. And no, they didn't choose marginality and exclusion. They were forced onto the margins. It would be a betrayal of them, not a fulfilment, to choose to stay there, angrily raging, when American society is finally on the brink of letting them into its core institutions on the basis of equality at long last. I am not a soldier, I am just an average man Living out my life the best way that I can I'm not reporting for duty, I'm not recruiting myself Join our forces that don't want me unless they need my Capable, my strength is my proof. Are you afraid I'll try to sleep with every soldier in my troop? Are you afraid I'd be the hero that you are looking for? And you'd have to thank my faggot ass for winning you your fucking war. It's the Onion Radio News. The Massachusetts Supreme Court orders all citizens to gay marry. This is Doyle Redland reporting.
Justices of the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled 5-2 to two today in favor of full, equal, and mandatory gay marriages for all citizens. Massachusetts Chief Justice Margaret H. Marshall. Any measure short of dismantling conventional matrimony and mandating the immediate homosexual marriage of all residents of the state of Massachusetts would dishonor same-sex unions. According to the 2000 census, Massachusetts has one of the highest concentrations of gay households in the country at 1.3 percent. Under the new law, that figure is expected to increase by approximately 98.7 percent. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News online. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Andy, there was some fantastic news in New York a couple of weeks ago. Gay marriage has now been legalised when the Civil Unions Bill was passed in Albany. And it's not often that you get just an uncomplicated piece of joyful news, so it's worth celebrating these moments when we get them, especially after a story like the last one, when you need a bit of a palate cleanser. And for those who are against gay marriage, for whatever reason, you know, um, whether they have an idea of what traditional marriage should entail or whether they think that by doing this we're opening up the gates of hell and are about to get mown down by a flaming horse ridden by the devil hitler and stanley matthews they may have (laughs) something to take the sting away in the form of a massive financial incentive because new york apparently estimates that the new law will bring in close to 180 million dollars over the next three years so I'm here to announce, Sandy, that I'm about to quit my job and do what I always wanted to do, form a wedding band that only plays <laughs> techno music and Melissa Etheridge covers. <laughs> Get ready, New York State. The Indiglo Boys are coming to a dance floor <laughs> near you. <laughs> Come to my window. <laughs> I'll be home soon. <laughs> I think, did you suffer brain damage by standing too close to that launch? <laughs> I might have done. I might have done, Andy. I definitely feel different after it. <laughs> but, well, I've not been following this story too closely, but I'm, ju- I'm just because you live in New York, don't you? Mm-hmm. And you're getting I married do. quite imminently. I am. Does this mean you're going to be forced to marry a man, or <laughs> is one of you going to have to take the plunge and book a decent quality surgeon? I, I'm, I, I'm confused by the stories that I've been reading. Well, people are confused in the press. You know, some of the reactions have been confused in the press about this, Andy. So these are all questions are all up in the air. I'm not sure. I thought I was sure until all this stuff started circling around. Now it's not clear. Right. The vote, anyway, went right up to the wire. 
And a key moment was when Republican Mark Grisanti of Buffalo, who had previously campaigned against gay marriage, voted for it, delivering a genuinely powerful speech saying, I cannot legally come up with an argument against same-sex marriage. Who am I to say that someone should not have the same rights that I have with my wife, whom I love, or have the same 1,300 rights that we have? I vote in the affirmative, Mr. President. It was an incredible moment, made <laughs> even more dramatic when he then dropped to one knee and said, and Governor Cuomo, <laughs> would you do me the honour of making me the happiest man in the world? <laughs> And marrying me. <laughs> it took balls, Andy. Yep. It took real balls to make that vote against the official line of his party. <laughs> Doing the right thing for no reason other than the reason of rightness has become so rare in politics <laughs> that I wonder if we should now capture Mark Crisanti, put him in a zoo and try to breed him somehow. <laughs> Do, uh, what did he say about his wife? That um, He sees no reason why everyone shouldn't have the same rights. Rights... Yeah, to his as wife. he does. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he may have slightly messed up the wording there. Right, okay. and I guess that vote is now legally binding, <laughs> so I think Mrs. Grisanti has been in hiding ever since. But it does seem a bit odd, John, after the royal wedding over here, which has mm -hmm. clearly been a huge hit in America as well. Uh, massive, showed, massive. showed quite how popular heterosexual marriage is. Why has New York now of all times gone to make homosexual marriage compulsory instead? I just don't, I don't understand the thinking. <laughs> there have been strongly motivated, uh, strongly politically, sorry, there's been, there was of course strong politically motivated opposition to it, a lot of Republicans and Conservatives in particular, worried that if same-sex couples were allowed to marry, they'd uh, effectively be encouraged to breed more, and the same-sex population could spiral out of control, meaning that same-sex people hold the democratic power strings at elections, so you can see why. They're concerned about this. And also, think of the children, John. Think of the children of New York. Are they going to be forced to watch videos of same-sex couples marrying every day at school? Is that what George Washington dipped his balls into the Potomac for? Is it? <laughs> the Potomac, Andy. Potomac. I do prefer the way that you say Potomac. it. Yep. Potomac. He dipped his balls into the Potomac. <laughs> George, get them out. This is the third time this week. Summer party every night. Never been so happy before. He's almost Mr. Right. But I think he's hot and I think he's sweet and I think he's gay and I think he's neat. Okay, okay, said my boyfriend's gay, but what does it matter anyway? He hasn't come out of the closet yet. Till then, I'll take all I can get. Two, three, four. He doesn't think I know, but I know, I know, I've always known. He doesn't think it shows, but it shows for sure. It's always shown. You might think it's a little sad, but he's the best lover that I've ever had. So I'm not sure that I was uh, prepared for the flood of emotions that overcame me when I um, was holding my father as he died. You see, we hadn't had the best relationship. And the hardest part about that was the starkness that I kept thinking would get better. And it didn't. In fact, it got worse because I never heard the words that I was looking for. I'm sorry I abused you. And so when my father died, I laid him back for the first time in a month, and all the machines were quiet, and I was suddenly alone with him. And I took his St. Christopher medal off to give to my mom, and I waited for the funeral director to come pick his body up. And I looked at him and I said, I gotta make some changes. And so I promised to myself that when I went back home, I would be making some changes. I wasn't quite sure what that was going to be. 
So I hopped a plane back to Seattle to my husband. And I decided that one of the things that would make me feel good was to start volunteering for the Humane Society. So I actually got roped into designing a clinic for people who were financially disabled by HIV-AIDS. And I had many volunteers. And one of the volunteers happened to be this woman that I instantly found to be engaging and, and, a, and a blast. And her name was Kate. And we became fast and furious friends. And I found that when we were doing stuff for the clinic and stuff, that when I was with her, I was having the ball, you know, just a ball. And then I found myself, when I wasn't with her, all I could do was wonder, well, I wonder what Kate's doing today, and thinking about Kate. And so one of the meetings we had, I asked her if after the meeting we could go sit and have a talk afterward, and she said, oh, sure. And I'm sure in her mind she was thinking, you know, I need to talk about, she needs to talk about her dad again. And so we pull up into the beautiful park up on top of Queen Anne, Cary Park, many of you know it, and it's got this stunning view, and I'm in my 81 Volvo station wagon, I turn it off, and it doesn't want to turn off, it just keeps going, and I'm like, this is great. And so finally, after it stops making its noise, I look at her and I said, I need to tell you something, and she says, what's that? And I said, I'm gay. And she goes, oh, oh, okay. And I said, but there's another part to this. And she said, and what is that? And I said, well, I'm finding myself caring for you. And she goes, oh. <laughs> and I said, and she was like, <laughs> and I waited to hear what she had to say. And she said, well, let me ask you one question. If, if I said no to this whole idea, would you still be gay? And I said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I went home that night to my husband and I told him. I said, I'm gay. And that's another story. Um, <laughs> but I, I set off on my new adventure, and I moved into an apartment, and I found myself spending more time at Kate's apartment that I, in true lesbian fashion, packed up my U-Haul and moved right into her 400-square-foot <laughs> apartment. And it was great, because I had always felt this just deep, deep sadness and this darkness in my heart that I wasn't being the person that I knew I was and that I knew I could be. And all of a sudden, I kind of was like, well, this is kind of fun. And we had game nights. And I thought, that's great. So we have a bunch of friends over, and we have two teams, and we're playing this game called Taboo. And so the game in Taboo is that you have a word above the line, and then you have five words below the line that you don't want your team to say or they don't get the word. And so I go... And I'm very, very sick with a respiratory infection. I sound like the Queen of England. And I go, I am often this. And in rapid-fire succession, I hear, sick, tired, pissed off, angry. And I'm like, no, I'm clumsy. <laughs> and it was this moment of clarity. I thought, am I sick, tired, pissed off, and angry? <laughs> Could be. Um, and so then I realized that 400 square feet had its limitations especially when you have gas. And I had just one of those nights. And so I said, I'm going to bed, which was across the room. And, well, it started to get worse. And she comes walking by, and it was like, and I, before I, I was trying to, like, find something to say really quick, and I went, sorry, I pooted, I coughed, and I tooted. And she walks by without missing a beat, and she goes, Dr. Seuss, get out of my bed, you flutey flute fluted. And that was just the way it was. We laughed, and it was really starting to affect this darkness and this pain. So 
much to my surprise, she said, hey, I, want, I, I really want you to spend the rest of your life with me because I, too, am finding that I'm caring for you. And I said, you bet. And so she said, you know, I know the church doesn't really want us to do that, so why don't we make up our own kind of pre-marriage counseling? And I said, great idea. So one weekend we decided we would write down our five top five core values. Easy enough. She goes to that side of the room, I go to that side of the room. And we come back, and I go, you go first. And she goes, number one, always be kind. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> because my number four was be kind when you can. <laughs> and there was really nowhere to go from there. Um, and she just looked at me like, oh, honey. But she just knew that was just me, and it didn't matter, and it didn't matter every day. And so we bought this house, and it was perfect because she was able to record her audiobooks, which she did quite well. And I worked and I worked and I worked on this house, and I made it this beautiful little cottage in the woods at 538 30th Avenue East. And I was loving it, and my heart was starting to feel some light, and I'm like, I'm digging this. And then something happened that is quite unimag unimaginable. A very bad storm came into Seattle. And it was much like a hurricane in my mind. They actually called it an Asian, Asian cyclone. And it had a lot of rain. And I had walked home that evening from work with my brother. And I stopped in at his house because I was completely drenched from head to toe. And I was waiting for Kate to finish a business meeting. And then she was going to come pick me up a mile away at my brother's house. And then I get a phone call from her, and she says, I need you to come home. There's uh, water coming in the basement. And I went, what? So I, I just quickly got dressed, and I said to my brother, I said, I've got to go. There's water coming in the basement. He's like, do you want me to come? And I said, no, just wait here. And so I start running home, and then I get another phone call. And she sounds concerned, and she says, how far away are you? And I said, sweetie, I'm running as fast as I can go. What's up? And she said, and I'm kind of annoyed that she's calling me, and I'm running, and I'm drenched, and I'm, you know... And uh, in true fashion, and she says, something has fallen in front of the door and I can't get out. And I said, I'm almost there. And I start hauling ass. And I round the corner on our street and I can't imagine what I'm seeing. There's water everywhere. And there's this white water rapid coming down our street on the side there. And my neighbor is trapped in their house and telling me, Kate's in there. And I open the front door, and my little dog, Pepper, comes out and is swimming in the street. My dog is swimming in the street. And I'm like, what the? And so I grab her, and I put her on the couch, and I hear Kate calling for me. But all I can hear is water, 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 just rushing water. And I run down the stairs, and she says, I need you to get me out. I need you to be my hero and get me out. So I start removing the pins on the doors, and I, water's here. And I get to the third one, and I can't budge it. I'm like, and I run up the stairs, and I grab a knife off of the butcher block. And I run back down, and I think I can cut through the sheetrock. And then the water goes over my head. And I'm in there, too. And I get out. And I run upstairs and I think, there's a heater vent. I'll just stomp through that heater vent and I'll get her head out and I'll hold her there until the firefighters come. And then I realize that's not going to work. So I run outside and I'm like, somebody help me. And there was no one in the world. It was like the, I was the only person left in the earth, on this earth. 
And I'm screaming, and I can't believe it's my screams. I've never heard myself scream like that. And this man comes running across the street, and I said, I need your cell phone. My cell phone went underwater. And he hands me a cell phone, and I call my brother, and I say, Jeff, Kate's drowning. Get here now. And he shows up. And then the fire truck comes. And then there's a dive team. A dive team. And they wind up pulling me out of the house because I'm hypothermic, and they take me next door to put clothes on of my neighbor's kid. And Jeff is in there, and the firefighters have to cut the entire floor out of our bedroom. And a firefighter jumps in the water and finds her and brings her out. And Jeff comes running at me, and he says, they've got her breathing. They're taking her to Harborview. And I go, let's go. And we get in the car, and he's driving like a maniac. And I'm like, Jeff, don't kill me before I get there. And he's going up streets the wrong way and on sidewalks, and he gets me there, and I just take out of the car. Now, mind you, I look a little crazy because I have these huge sweats and size 13 boys high-top basketball shoes. (laughs) And my hair is caked with mud. And I get to the door of the hospital, and I'm wanting to get back to her at the emergency room. This woman says, and who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Charlene, I'm Kate's partner, I need to get in there now. And she says, well, now, no, wait a minute, now just, just hold on a second. And I'm thinking, tick-tock, 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 I need to get in there. Who the hell are you? And she says, we need to get someone on the phone that will allow you to be in there. And by this time, Jeff's standing by me, and I'm looking at him like, Am I hearing a different language? Is this woman speaking English? I don't understand her all of a sudden. And what I realize she's saying is I don't count. So I find a cell phone and I have to call information and I don't know how to spell Kate's sister's married last name. So I'm like, no, it's R-U-E-S. No, it's R-E-U. And I finally get it. And I say, Maude, you got to tell him I got to get in there. And I hand this phone over and it was like, wait a minute. You'll take the word of a cell phone over me standing here who's had 10 years of their life with this person. And I get to her. And they tell me it's not good. And so they move her to ICU and they say, are you staying the night? And I said, you couldn't pry me off. And then she died. And I said, we, I want you to take the intubation tube out, please. And the nurse said, I can't. And I said, let me say it again. I want you to take the intubation tube out. And she said, Charlene, we can't. And I said, you don't understand. I need to kiss her goodbye. And I said, can you at least get me a priest? We can't find a priest. Can you get me some oil? And they bring in this jar, and it's the most beautiful green jar, and it has oil. And so I do what a priest should have done. I anoint her head and her hands and her feet, And then I just lay my head on her chest, and the darkness comes back. And I'm like, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. How could you do this to me? It wasn't enough. And so I thought, I'm mad. I got to do something. And so I told the Senate here, and I said, you got to hear me, because this has got to stop. And they heard me. And they passed the law in our state, two to one, that we get rights. But it wasn't enough. And I met the president. And I got to go meet uh, Governor Gregoire in her office, and we talked. And and I kept meeting all these celebrities, and I kept traveling all over, and I made a documentary film, and I'm, you know. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this, this 
this envelope shows up and it says the city of Seattle. I'm like, what the hell? So I open it and there's a disc and it says 911 recordings. I'm like, oh, hell. And I refuse to open it. And my brother's like, don't listen to it. My therapist, my friends, everyone's like, don't listen to the tape. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right. And I'm just going through the motions, trying to see if I can do something about this darkness that's just eating me. And her aunt calls me after the signing of the, of the bill to t tell me how proud she is of me. And she was the aunt that had officiated our wedding. She had been a nun for 16 years. And she said, Charlene, you know what? She said, I wanted you to know that I kept every single email that Kate ever wrote me. And in one of them, Kate said that she had a mantra that she would say to herself before she went on the stage. I said, well, what is it? She said, Kate would say to herself, be a light, be a flame, be a beacon. And I thought, I know she was a light and a flame and a beacon. And it just came home even harder. And the darkness got worse. And then one day, I just wanted to hear her voice. And I ripped open the cassette, or the, the box that the CD was in, and I threw it in the machine, and I start hearing it. And then I hear her voice. And I hear her say, tell to the operator, tell Charlene I love her. I love you, Charlene. I love you. And I finally came to realize that she was telling me that I could be a light and a flame and a beacon. Hey Jay, it's Scott from St. Louis. I guess I'm just going to go with one issue today to keep it brief. And uh, that's pretty much just my frustration with middle class America and how they are still voting Republican. It's just frustrating that so many people vote Republican and they do so on one issue and one issue alone. Abortion. I mean, I do, you know, respect them for sticking to their beliefs, but that being understood, or that being said, they need to understand that abortion is legal, whether they like it or not, and it's not going anywhere. So therefore, they need to look past the issue of abortion and just, I don't know, start voting for people that actually have their best interests in mind. I know that's a crazy thought, but I don't know. I just wish that more people would do that, and I'm just worried that it's not going to change, and we may just be looking at a lost generation in politics. I hope I'm wrong. I don't know. We need to wake the majority of America up and get these corporate puppets out of Washington and decrease the power of lobbyists out there because they're doing some really bad things. And, uh, 
The best way to do that, I think, is to get our progressive views out to more people, and uh, your show does that, and I thank you for it. Scott from St. Louis. Later. Hey, Jay, this is Mike from uh, Philadelphia. I guess this could be considered a call to action. It's been about three weeks since uh, Anthony Weiner resigned. Ironically enough, one of the first voices uh, to ask for his resignation was progressive show host Ed Schultz. I would simply like to uh, request all uh, fellow progressives to simply boycott his show. Uh, we don't have to be any crazy right-wingers and go after advertisers or mass market campaigns. I would just like to simply turn it off. Um, thanks. Love the show. Have a great day. Peace. Jay, this is Colleen, and I live in Sweet Home, Oregon. It's beautiful here. Hey, um, I just wanted to thank you. I just listened to your announcement about how we just spread the word um, exponentially, basically, and I, I just think that's great. For so many years, I'm 44 years old, for so so many years I've known that there have been great wrongs in government and politics and, you know, just all around the world. And um, I've never been able to really communicate um, deeply to people uh, about specific events and, and you know, just... just what's going on out there to make me feel that my hackles are raised so by um, happening. I started listening to your show uh, maybe a month ago and uh, I like to, I'm an artist, I like to sit here and I like to paint and draw and listen to your show and um, I'm totally addicted and I learn stuff every single time and now it's it's a joy because I can actually say to people, hey, this is what I learned. And, um, you know, uh, that's a beautiful thing. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you so much. And uh, this is great. I just can't even put it into words. Um, and I'm spreading the podcast to everyone I know. And, and um, I've had some really great debates with who are more uh, conservative <laughs> and that's been fun too so anyway Jay thank you so much and um, I'm probably going to give you some money here real soon <laughs> alright take care bye Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I just want to give a little update today on the new project we're all working on together, the uh, social media integration into the site. Now, uh, all of you can do what I do, collect the clips that you like, and share them on your own networks. We have just gotten started on this project, and it is it is doing well. It, it is doing exactly what we expected. Uh, of course, everything like this uh, starts slow and builds, but it is definitely doing both of those things. It is it is starting, it is building, 
and uh, and I have incredibly high hopes for it. So you know, all of this is a, a very very long term project. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Obviously, I'm getting in the habit of talking about it on a regular basis, including you know a promo about it in every show, and I'm hoping that you guys are getting in the habit of taking part, you know, it's, it's not something that you have to do every day. And it's definitely not something that takes a lot of time. Uh, it just takes a little bit of effort, maybe, um, you know, a little bit of a reminder, uh, to just go to bestoftheleft.com for about a minute every three days or so. And, uh, and click the links to the segments you like, and that helps enormously spread the word about all this great content that you know and love. And, uh, you know, and I think together we're going to make a huge, huge difference. So I just wanted to give that little positive update on how things are going and thank all of the media activists out there who are already taking action. Um, you know, it's, it's great. All, all the early adopters, uh, everyone seems to be incredibly excited about it. All of the feedback has been very positive. And, uh, and the fact that people have jumped on board right away means that this is something that, uh, you know, people wanted to do before they even realized they wanted to do it. Now, speaking of people to thank, I want to thank all the people who volunteered to help make the show possible. Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, Emerson, and Lauren all do an amazing job on a, a whole variety of different things. And, you know, I could do the show without them, but I really wouldn't want to. <laughs> Just I'm blown away by the uh, sheer amount of work that they do. And then, of course, members make the show possible in a completely different way. Uh, Monica M. signed up for her leftist yearly membership way back on February 28th, 2010, and has stuck with the show since then. And Stephen G. signed up for his leftist monthly membership back on March 17th, 2010, and, uh, and also has stuck with the show ever since then. So that's a long time for both of those uh, awesome members, and I couldn't appreciate it anymore. You know... Uh, as I said with the volunteers, I could do it without them, but I really wouldn't want to. And in terms of the members, like the show could exist, but my favorite statistic that I've ever come up with, I, and I think I talked about this back on the 500th episode when I did a little bit of math, is that you know the show could have existed as a hobby, and you know it, it could have gone forward just as something that I did once a week or whatever. But uh, but ever since launching the membership program, the members have allowed over 150 episodes to be produced that would not have otherwise been produced without their support. And so, you know, it's, it's really easy to say, well, you know, it was like the show would probably be around if I don't support it. And, you know, that's okay. That's probably true in some form or sense, but would it be what it is today? Not even close. So, that's the argument I want to make from now on as to, uh, you know, why membership support is so important because it simply makes the show what it is. So that's going to do it for today. Stay connected with the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also donate your Twitter account, which also helps us spread the word enormously. Details about that are at the website, of course. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Shining sheep
Jesus before. 